Hey everyone, Alexi the Greek here. Welcome back. We have a uh, fun episode ahead for you with author and professor Nomi Claire Lazar. She's got a book called Out of Joint Power Crisis and the Rhetoric of Time. But before we get to that, a reminder that Ryan, this is all about Ryan. He's the managing editor now of the American Prospect Magazine, Ryan. That's and why me. is that relevant to Left Anchor? You tell us, Ryan. Why is that relevant? <laughs> That's a, We are now contractually stipulated to mention that the podcast is now sponsored <laughs> by the Pros- Prospect, the world's best magazine, perfect in every way. Uh, new issue coming out soon. And so if you if you sponsor the podcast at the $10 a month tier, you can get access. You get a subscription, a digital subscription to the website and a for free, for free, for free and a, a heavily discounted print subscription if you want it. And our undying gratitude and affection, of course. This is true. If you love us a little bit less, you can, of course, still be our patrons at the $5 level, and uh, we'll still like you a lot. Yeah. That'll be great. And you could do either of those things at um, patreon.com slash left anchor. Or uh, um, throw us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or oh, anywhere else. Uh, that's, please, for the love of God. Yeah. <laughs> I, we just, we, we would really appreciate it. It's true. We'd really appreciate it. It really helps. It ma- it makes a difference in our lives, and I know that matters to you yeah. and our audience. So Share it. Send, a, send episodes to your racist grandpa. Absolutely. Any racist friends or relatives you have, especially it could help them uh, become better people. Yeah, we can we can we can reform them we're, together. Yeah, we're here for you. But let's <laughs> now, Ryan, tell us tell us a bit about this guest that's coming on, though. I, I think we should we should talk about her. Uh, who Who is she and where does she teach and whatnot? Uh, can you remind me? So she's a professor of uh Full politics. professor of politics in the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa and a member of the university's Board of Governors. Boom. Lots of power. Power and prestige. Yeah. Uh, but really, Nomi, she's she's quite brilliant. Her book is great. And we have a great conversation uh, that really involves a lot of fun history and theory, but also makes some sense of uh, MAGA and some... You know, some of the craziness today going on, uh, I think you're going to enjoy it. Yeah. Wouldn't you say, Ryan? It's all about time. Um, and it does not presuppose that time exists. So it's true. You know, and with that in mind, uh, you know, it's about time to get to the episode. So here we go. Perfect. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek, welcoming professor, author, Nomi Claire Lazar uh, across the pond today in London. Um, but today we're here to talk about this wonderful book, Power, I'm sorry, Out of Joint. I skipped to the subtitle. I don't know why. Out of Joint. It's a good subtitle. Power Crisis and the Rhetoric of Time. Uh, welcome, Nomi. We're really excited to talk about your book today. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really uh, looking forward to uh, chatting with you guys, too. Wonderful, wonderful. So we thought to open up, um, if you'd like, about... How did you get this project going? Why time and power and rhetoric? What what was the kind of genesis of this particular endeavor for you? So I'm a I'm gonna, just going to own it. I'm a pretty seriously uh, nerdy human, and when when I was a little kid, I used to like to go and get old, broken down clockworks and watches and stuff like that uh, from jewelry stores and kind of take them apart and see how they worked, and just had this sort of fascination with uh, clocks and clockwork. Um, and then I mentioned this once to an elderly cousin of mine who gave me for my birthday, this history of clocks and calendars, uh, just a little book about it. 
but by then I was, uh, I, you know, studying politics. And as I was reading this book, I noticed this really strange thing, which is that all of these people who had uh, gone about uh, uh, rev- revising calendars, right, reforming calendars, were political leaders who were in the midst of complete upheaval, uh, revolution, instituting some new kind of regime. And from a politics perspective, this makes absolutely no sense, right? Because calendar reforms are, they're pretty expensive. They often require lots of new equipment. Um, they sometimes annoy people, depending how you do them. Um, and you would think that in the midst of revolution, that you would have lots of other things to be worrying about, you know, other than, oh, we should reform the calendar. Um, and if it had just been one or two instances here or there, then you might have thought to yourself, okay, you know, this guy's just nerdy like me and kind of, you know, wanted to play around a little bit. But because it's so common, so consistent, not just, and across cultures too. So through time and also across cultures, uh, and, you know, just to rhyme off some of the many, many examples, uh, Julius Caesar, Augustus, Every dynasty founding Chinese emperor, uh, Kini Yashkukmo, who founds the Mayan, uh, you know, high, the uh, classical Mayan regime in, in Copan, the French revolutionaries, Lenin, Stalin, Ataturk, Pol Pot. I could just keep going all day, but you get the picture. Uh, so, so here, so, so it, it can't just be a quirk, right? It can't just be somebody's nerdy quirk. There must be something going on here. So what do all of these guys have in common? They all are facing a challenge of legitimacy, right? So when you put something new politically into effect, then you have to convince people that it's good for them, that it's good for them for their future, right? In in some way, that they should accept it. Uh, and so I thought I would... So, so the hy- hypothesis of the book is there must be something about the structure of time, or the, I shouldn't say there must be. Let, you know, I went to see if there was something about the structure of time that might serve the project of legitimation. And so that was the origin of, of the book. And then it took many, many years of you know, thinking and reading and learning about different historical cases uh, before everything sort of came together. Uh, but yes, that's how it got going. So, so cool that your academic work links up with your childhood passion. I love that. Um, and, and I, I want to dive in because there's a lot of things to disentangle because it's, it's such a nuanced work here. Um, you said the structure of time, but I think it's important at the outset to talk about, uh, you know, time as the, the ontological versus epistemological dimensions here, because you're agnostic as you write about whether time as such exists. And, and so we're, we're, we're uh, we don't need to get into the weeds of, of if time exists, right? Because that's its own uh, quandary. But, uh, insofar as we experience something we think of as time, right? Uh, there, there are certain, uh, ways that we conceptualize time technologies. Maybe you could get into, to, to, this aspect here, because, you know, we're talking about the, the human perception and conceptualization and, and thinking about um, time, and that's going to be really relevant politically, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, as you say, um, it, at least for my purposes, it sort of doesn't matter, you know, whether time exists or, uh, you know, what it is, but it does matter how we experience time. And I make the argument in the book that, uh, we can only, we can never experience time directly. We can only experience time through mediation, the mediation of marks and measures. So whether that's the tick of a clock, 
whether it's the cycle of the moon or the, the rise and fall of tides or even, you know, the sound of the garbage truck or a school bus or something going by, that we experience the passing of time through these marks and measures. And we have some evidence for that. I mean, if you kind of ask yourself, well, how do I know time is passing? Uh, almost inevitably, you're going to refer to some kind of marker. And there are these crazy people who have gone into caves for months at a time to sort of see what happens. You know, they're, they're sort of chronobiologists, they call themselves. So what happens to your body? What happens to your sense of time if you're uh, separated from the usual marks and measures uh, with which we evolved as a species? And even there, so even these people who are underground with no sense of, uh, you know, what's happening above. So they would call up to the surface and report things, but nobody would say anything back, right? And they would start to mark time by their own body. And so they uh, would uh, experience a day as, you know, eating and drinking and then going to sleep and waking up. But the actual sort of earth time that uh, would constitute their sleep-wake cycle would get way out of whack. So they'd sleep for 24 hours and then be up for 24 hours. And so everything would just be way out of whack, but they would still experience time passing in the sense of days. So our experience of time is always mediated through these marks and measures. And we're constantly using multiple marks and measures in order to understand the world around us. So if you think of your typical day, right? Um, you have a watch, but you only use it for certain things. Um, so if you're going like me to give some lectures or something, you, you certainly don't need seconds for that. You want to be there sort of roughly in a five minute kind of radius. Uh, or if you're going to try and catch a train or something, but then say you've got kids and you send them out to play, you, you sort of don't care about the hour at all. You care about when it's going to be dark, potentially. So you say be home by dark, right? Uh, or if you're timing an egg, you don't care which five minutes, but you want to know that it's five minutes. You use a different marker there. Same thing with calendars. People will use the Gregorian calendar, but at the same time, the academic year calendar, uh, uh, Muslims, Jews, uh, Hindus, etc. Will you also use a, a religious calendar? And so we're constantly using all of these different marks and measures and simultaneously having as a result these different experiences, these overlapping experiences of time and how it moves and how it flows. Mm, that's wonderful. So, so I'm already seeing the, the political relevance, but before we dive into it directly, it seems like time is a thing that uh, orders our lives and, and it allows us um, to have purpose, to direct ourselves, and also to look back and, and, and kind of um, build narratives and make meaning out of the activities and events and even to determine what is an event and so forth. Um, and, and yet it's, it's both connected to kind of what conditions us biologically and in nature and yet is, is, uh, socially constructed. But you, you make an important point here that what you find, uh, there's this universal need to mark and measure and, and to, to make meaning. Um, but time isn't culturally constructed, uh, as much as different cultures with similar aims, uh, in contexts that, that share a purpose seem to make the same kind of use of, um, different temporal framing. And maybe we can get into what that might mean. Is that, is that right? Did I get that right? Um, yeah, more or less. So, so essentially, you know, it, you might say, so people talk about like, oh, how accurate is that clock or something like that, right? How accurate is, is your watch? So people who, like me, who are sort of into watches, right? Uh, talk about accuracy. Mm -hmm. Um, but accuracy doesn't mean anything in itself if we can only ever experience time through marks and measures, because it could only be accurate with respect to some further marker measure. 
And so, so there's no such thing as saying, oh, this is accurate with respect to time itself, because we have no access to that, right? Only through mediation. And so what I argue is that when we talk about accuracy, we mean accuracy with respect to specific aims, specific things that we do with time. Uh, and, uh, the, and, and so, so, the, uh, um, because humans sometimes do like across cultures kind of distinct things with time, they may have different emphases on different ways of understanding how time moves, different ways of, of counting time, et cetera. But that there is actually remarkable, uh, consistency with respect to the, the types of timing that humans do across cultures. Uh, and, and that includes sort of timing for equality. So the ancient Greeks, for example, give you like uh, this much water's worth of time sort of flowing out of this bowl to give your speech kind of thing. Uh, uh, time and, 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 and also conceptions of the flow of time, which I think is sort of what you're getting at a little bit here. So, so each of us as a, as human beings have experiences, biological experiences of time moving in a line, right? So, so we, we learn more and more, we could say, uh, as we grow older, um, we get taller and taller, uh, and then at some point maybe start to get shorter and shorter and to forget things is, <laughs> is happening to me these days. Um, but also of, of things moving in a circle, right? So every time you have a birthday, every time you, you, uh, buy a new calendar and it's January again, right? Things are moving in a circle, but also in the, a line. And each time you sort of get back to the start, it's the same type of thing, like the same, you know, January is the same type of thing, but it's a different token January that's sort of moving in a line one after another. Um, so all cultures have, you know, the cyclicality and the linearity and often conceptions of progress and conceptions of decline. And many cultures have um, uh, uh, also this sort of sense of an end in what happens after that, the sense of a sort of a a, a point at which things become radically different. Either you go to heaven or hell or you're reincarnated, uh, et cetera. Uh, so, so those kinds of what I call conceptions of the flow of time uh, are uh, seem to be fairly culturally universal, although, of course, they have their different uh, you know, different, you know, slightly different manifestations and different emphases, you know, cultural emphases, but they seem to be there cross-culturally, which makes sense because they're, they're sort of part of our biology, right? They're part of our universal experience of what it is to be a body on this planet among other bodies. Totally. Yeah. yeah and it's, yeah, go ahead, Ryan. Yeah. Oh, well, <clears throat> I thought this, I mean, you know, we've been speaking fairly sort of abstractly about this, like this laying the foundation. But I thought it might, you know, if uh, you could return to the the question briefly that that interested you in the beginning and tell us like a, a story or two of these these guys. I think they're almost all guys. Uh, unfortunately, you know, not a lot of uh, female adventure conquerors. You know, maybe uh, Chelsea Clinton can help with that and subjugate someplace. <laughs> Um, uh, but you know, uh, Caesar, what was he, what was he doing, you know, and, and how did he build up his legitimacy? Like, what did that do for him to say, I've new calendar and therefore, uh, let me rule over you. Okay. So, um, uh, you're, you're right that the abstract stuff kind of lays the groundwork because it, in order for my argument to work, it has to be the case that, um, that we're willing to accept a different sense of how time flows or a different calendar, right? It has to resonate with us somehow. So putting that aside for a second. So I argue in the book that there are two main sources of legitimacy. So if you're Julius Caesar, 
uh, and you want to, you know, shake things up a bit, um, concentrate some power, uh, you, you're, and you want to convince people that that's a, that's a legitimate thing to do. You have two ways of doing that. And one is convincing people that it's good for them, that you're going to be a good performer, that you're going to make their lives better, that the event of you turning up on the scene is, means good things for the future. And that's like performance legitimacy. And the other source you can draw from is uh, basically order-based legitimacy. So whenever we justify anything, we always sort of refer it to a sort of pre-existing structure that we already accept. You know, whether that's in politics, the order of nature, you know, th- that's just not part of the natural order, we say, or that's, you know, what uh, justice demands, or uh, uh, that's what God requires of us. Right. Or that's what the Constitution requires. So we'll refer back, you know, in justifying things in politics to some other order that we already accept as legitimate. Okay, so we have these two sources of order. So how do these relate to the calendar and how does Julius Caesar use them? So uh, Julius Caesar crosses the Rubicon uh, uh, and, and brings the army into Rome, which is totally illegal, uh, on, on the 10th of January. And I always remember this because it's also my birthday. But the other interesting thing about that is that the calendar in Rome had become so corrupt, and I'll explain why in a minute, that it was actually the autumn. So it was harvest season, even though it was January. Now, how did that come about? Um, and I'll, I'll tell you this to show how the calendar became a symbol of corruption. So it, it was corrupt from the order of nature. And so uh, Caesar is going to use it then as a sort of a symbol, you know, a, a way of communicating that he is the person who cares about the order of nature and what is right and rational. And by reforming the calendar, he symbolizes the sort of cleaning up of the corruption. But it's interesting, uh, you know, before. Uh, to, to understand how the calendar became corrupt, uh, uh, because that's very political as well, which is, uh, you know, another example of how calendars are always subject to, uh, reform. And that's that the solar year and the, and the lunar months don't line up, right? So you can't fit X number of lunar cycles into a solar year perfectly. It's that there are always going to be a few extra days. And so cultures would have different ways of trying to line these up. A lot of cultures thought those extra days were sort of bad luck. Uh, but the Romans uh, gave the job of identifying when you needed this extra time to someone in an elected office, who in fact was the Pontifex Maximus, the person we now call the Pope. Um, and, um, uh, and, and the reason why this was political was that if you had friends who were in important offices, cause Roman, Romans were elected for one year, you could literally make the year longer, right? And if you had enemies you wanted to get rid of, you could make the year shorter. If you had enemies who were in posts like far outside of Rome and you wanted to keep them there for a while, same deal. You could just lengthen the year. And that's how the year had become so out of whack from the order of nature. So by, um, basically reforming the calendar in line with the, what was then a sort of an Egyptian model, which was thought of as like scientific and rational. Okay. But also respecting nature. So this isn't an aberration or a corruption of nature like the calendar that was there before. Caesar is able to communicate to the Romans that he's the guy who stands up for right order, for, for what's, for nature, for reason, uh, for justice, for anti-corruption, right? So it's this sort of symbolic communication. But at the same time, uh, it open, be, like once the calendar's kind of open like that, uh, Augustus starts putting holidays into the calendar. And this, this is a really interesting technique that almost every single modern state uses. 
So if you want to kind of remind people of what your state is for, right, like what they should be proud of, think of the 4th of July, right, uh, and some of the debates around it. Um, uh, instead of having to do that all the time where people are just kind of going to tune you out and maybe you forget, you just plonk it in the calendar and the calendar just brings it back automatically every year. So you get this sort of rehearsal of the civic religion that's sort of auto-renewed. Uh, through the calendar. And Augustus does this. He puts all his family members' birthdays in there, or rather allows this, allows, quotation <laughs> marks, uh, the Senate to do this, uh, so that uh, there's this rehearsal of his family's legitimacy every year throughout the year. And everyone gets a day off to celebrate it, which of course makes them feel pretty good about it. So that's a good example of using calendars to legitimate. It's pretty awesome, uh, that example, because it both as you say, uh, that the holiday making, especially it both, um, builds in a, a ritual that is just kind of, uh, automatic that reminds, as Machiavelli would say, perhaps, uh, the citizens of the kind of constitutional principles or the legitimacy of the state and the authority. Uh, but also it shows the power of the state is to literally give you time or to be able to change time as if they're omniscient and can like literally change the basic, you know, structure of your life. Uh, and so, the, you know, to come back to your different conceptions of the flow of time, um, or, or, or those that you discover and, and discuss, uh, they seem to correspond to then different strategies, uh, of those in power politically, um, especially rhetorically, right? They correspond to, um, to ways that, that those in power seek to, uh, persuade the citizens of the legitimacy uh, in different instances that call for different types of tactics, right? Um, so maybe you could talk about that, that correspondence a bit. Absolutely. Uh, so, so with the, you know, so in addition to the sort of clocks and calendars that help us organize our day-to-day -day lives, uh, we do also have these sort of conceptions of the flow of time, right? So, so how do events move in time? Uh, are they progressive? Are they cyclic? Um, uh, you know, is there, is there going to be an end that's coming and is it coming soon or far away? Was there a sort of time before time? All of these kinds of things. And, and as you say, political leaders, um, uh, kind of harness the fact that we're familiar with all of these shapes of time to tell us what events or innovations are going to mean for the future. So, uh, one of my favorite examples along these lines is, uh, Victor Orban. Uh, who, uh, uh, you know, in, in the, his sort of 25 year bid to sort of consolidate his power in Hungary, uh, has often used this kind of grand cyclic re uh, rhetoric, which is very common among populists. And you can think about the slogan that Donald Trump borrowed from him, you know, make America great again, right? So this grand cyclic thing, which he bor borrows verbatim, you know, except for the name of the country, from Orban, by the way. Um, so for years, Orban has been making reference. He's been sort of trying to draw a connection between the founding of Hungary in the year 1000 by St. Stephen, right? And telling this, and the, you know, and the year 2000, when Hungary is going to be sort of refounded. And so over and over again, he, he tells this story in his speeches, like, Hungary's founded, you know, St. Stephen, what a great guy. Uh, we're such amazing people. We, you know, ethnic Hungarians. And so we kind of rose to glory and we gave Europe all this great stuff and we were fantastic. And then at the beginning of the 20th century, he says everything became gray, you know, so, so, uh, uh, you know, first there are the wars and the, 
and, and there's communism and everything becomes dull and gray. And so all of these external forces, that's important in populism, right? These external forces are sort of arrayed against the greatness of Hungary and are dragging it down the other side of this circle until Hungary is just a mess. Right. So what does Hungary need? It's gone up the curve and now it was dragged through no fault of its own back down the curve. And now here is Orban on the scene. Right. And he, you know, at the this nice parallel, this year 2000 is going to raise Hungary up again on this new cycle. And people just love this kind of rhetorical framing so much so that I've been trying to convince some climate activists lately that that they should give it a try. <laughs> um, you know, th- because the apocalyptic stuff doesn't work so well, which we can talk about in a minute. Uh, but boy, does this grand cyclic stuff uh, uh, work well. Uh, and he puts this right in the preamble to the constitution of Hungary, that this is, so, so the, you know, a constitution, it's an event that's a really big deal. Why should people accept it? Particularly because they didn't get much input into it. And, and so, you know, what, because of what this event means for their future. And he tells them what that is by drawing the sort of grand cyclic thing. What it means is we're now on our way up again, basically. Fascinating. Um, yeah, kind of. <laughs> There's an interesting that you, you um, reminded me in the in this section in, in your comments of a, a, a kind of classic uh, far right mindset that I see a lot. Um, which is like an appeal to sort of this this imagined half imagined or totally imagined past, you know, and that we need to re- return to this more pure state, f- followed by um, or or in concert with an absolute dependence on modern convenience and uh, complete like mindset that is dominated by you know modern suppositions and so on and the what i always am reminded of is a two tweet combination uh from one of those you know return accounts like a picture of a pastoral countryside in like bavaria or someplace followed by the convenience store is out of cool ranch doritos again god fucking damn it i hate this place (laughs) but anyway i just wanted to tell that story um you one thing that that really uh fascinated me to maybe change the subject a little bit was your discussion of primitivism, which I think kind of hooks into this, like I, I, I believe uh, Orban kind of uses this a little bit, um, but the, the, it's, it's kind of this, um, this rhetoric of a, of, of a past, but it's a very particular type of rhetoric and appeal to us, to a certain, like a state of nature that never really existed. And in fact, can't exist almost by definition. So could you sort of go into that a little bit, explain what the, what this is about and and how it works? Sure. Um, so just, just, you know, I I feel compelled to point out that, uh, that primitivism is something that the left uses, uh, as well. Oh yeah. I want to bring that, you talk about E.P. Thompson. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, but, and, and it works regardless of where you are on the political spectrum because it has this sort of strange emotional power. And so in the chapter on primitivism, which is actually my favorite chapter. So if any of you listeners out there decide to read the book, uh, when you get to the primitive chapter, you can be like, Oh, this is the good one. No, they're all good. That one's just, okay. Um, so, uh, so basically, uh, um, we have this notion that uh, okay, so primitivism is, is, is the idea that, that things were sort of good and pure at the outset, 
right? So the closer we are to nature, uh, the closer we are to abundance and purity. And that this idea, again, appears across so many different cultures. So the most obvious example is Eden, right? Where there's an abundance of everything and nobody knows anything. So there's no sophistication, right? There's no uh, you know, it's just, you just, you just exist in, and nothing happens. This is critical. So there's no events, there's no politics, nothing happens. You just exist in this sort of peaceful numbness of plenty and, uh, everything is pure and good because you can't act, right? You can't act because as soon as you act, you, you kind of, um, you start building things and creating determinations and you're not in this kind of primitive pure state anymore. Um, and, so, so what I argue in the book is that, uh, uh, and, and yeah, so this, this occurs across cultures, but it, it tends to arise in, in cultures where people are starting to get really crowded together. So you get it certainly in like ancient Assyria, for example. Uh, uh, you get it, it's, it, you know, everywhere in Gandhi. Uh, and, uh, um, uh, 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 so, so we're basically wherever people are kind of crowded together and things are noisy and messy, there's a sort of yearning after simplicity, purity, and nature. Uh, so you can't, but you can't really use this as a political doctrine per se, but you can hold it up as a, as a, uh, you know, alongside a mirror, you could say. So, so when you say, you know, look how marvelous things were there, or you might think about Rousseau, right? So look how marvelous things were in the, in this peaceful state of nature where everything was plentiful and there was leisure and there was no domination because, uh, or no external domination because there was no need for it because there's plenty of everything for everyone and all of this kind of thing. Uh, you can sort of hold it up as uh, to compare the situation that in which we live, which is sort of ripe with domination and, you know, crowds and noise and, and corruption and all of this kind of thing. So it sort of acts as a mirror. And the way I describe it in the book is that we imagine this time before time, right? Before things happened, before there was movement. And then something in these narratives kind of wrenches the world into motion. So it's like almost like an inertial force, right? And usually, again, this is described as an outside force. So for Gandhi, you know, it's, it's colonialism, right? Or uh, for um, many, uh, you know, British Marxists, it's like the steam engine is the big kind of, you know, the symbol, right, of this outside uh, corruption. And so the world is wrenched into motion and suddenly there's politics and there's conflict and there's domination and there's corruption and violence and all of this stuff. And so, so this kind of primitivist politics, although it can't actually get you anywhere on its own, by holding up this mirror, this kind of image of purity with time stopped, encourages people to move toward a politics that aims to provide this sort of counter inertial force that's going to stop time, stop the world for, from moving. And this is every kind of utopianism, basically. In utopia, you've achieved perfection and nothing moves. Nothing happens, right? Because anything that happens is corruption away from this perfection. So primitivism and some kind of utopianism are sort of uh, equal but opposite. What happened before there was time and conflict and domination? And what if only we could muster enough force, enough violence to stop the world will happen afterward? We'll go back to this sort of peaceful state. And yeah. it's, and you, you, oh, sorry, Ryan. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to f to follow up about E.P. Thompson. I think that's that that was just an interesting little piece of history that I uh, I learned reading your chapter that um, 
This he he wrote. He, this is a British Marxist historian. He wrote, uh, what is it, the making of the English working class? Or is that the title? Um, but there's a famous article. It might even be in that book as well. Um, and, but, but making the case that um, basically, uh, as industrialization happened, like the clock was one of the key like mechanisms that were was used to sort of regiment the working class, and that before. Uh, before the industrialization, people didn't really use clocks very much and that like people had a much more organic, uh, relationship, you know, as peasants with their, their daily, their, their, the work that they performed. And, um, this very much partakes of like the primitivist frames, but, but like maybe uh, you could explain to us, that's a bunch of bullshit. Right? It's just not true at all. <laughs> oh, but we so want it to be true. So, um, people are so, so resistant to letting this go because it works so powerfully well symbolically, right? So, yeah. uh, because the clock is, you know, it's a symbol of decay. It's a, you know, a symbol of, of time passing, you know, of the movement toward death, right? So in art and literature and things, that's what the clock does. That's what it is. Uh, so it's a, it's, it's by its very nature, the symbol of like corruption and time running out and things like that. So it, it, it would just be so perfect if only it were the case that the clock, this mechanical thing, right, had corrupted people's sense of time with nature itself being the natural sense of time. Though, of course, anything you use in nature to mark time is also a construction, right? So yeah. the, the, the movement of the seasons is not time. It's just, you know, uh, uh, it, it's just the orbit of planets and, and moons. Um, you know, that's, that's what it, you know, the effect of that. It's not time itself. It's just another thing we use to mark time. It's not inherently better, for example. But of course, that's not exactly what E.P. E. Thompson is suggesting. He's suggesting that what is better is this more, this more kind of natural rhythm of work and rest, which of course never applied to women, right? Uh, um, yeah. uh, you know, was, was always sort of, is a kind of very male dominated view. And so he's using the, um, uh, uh, the clock as sort of a symbol of this decay of quality of life. And of course, nobody is contesting the fact that, uh, that, that human misery reached one of its many peaks in the industrial revolution, uh, just contesting the fact that this was facilitated by, uh, clock time. And the evidence for that, which has been amassed by, you know, many different historians, uh, uh, is that first of all, clock time was very present in people's lives in different ways before the industrial revolution. And the fact that people who weren't yet, uh, working in industrial conditions, uh, the first thing they bought if they got any money was a clock. And that's because they're useful for lots of different kinds of things, right? So, yeah. so they're just, they're just handy things because, you know, to meet certain aims that we have. Um, so, so I do contest that, but I'm less interested. I mean, that's more the domain of the, of the historians, uh, who have, you know, mustered this evidence. So I'm less interested in the fact that he's wrong than in people's, um, uh, uh, uh you know, profound wish that he be right. If you see yeah. what I mean. Right. right. Yeah. I, Cause one thing that I, that really comes through is this human need to escape time and therefore to escape politics and escape. I mean, the, the fact that, that choices only exist in, um, 
under constraint, right? Under limitation, which of course time gives us limitation. Um, but, but the fact, you know, as, as you, you know, quote Spinoza, the fact that any concretizing or instantiation of any particularity, uh, is necessarily the negation of other possibilities that weren't chosen, right? Or, and so, so there is something natural about our, uh, desire to want to have it all and to escape the tough choices. Um, but I think a theme running throughout is, is, uh, if we can have an eye towards what kind of politics might actually avoid some of these, um, these pitfalls is that meaning comes with the responsibility of choice, right? And, and politics has to happen. Um, so yeah, so, so what do you think in your study about how, uh, especially those who want to have a kind of radical transformative politics should think about, um, these different ways to think about time, uh, so that we don't try to just bail out of the problem of politics and time altogether, right? Okay. So I think there are three ways that this study can be useful to, uh, activists, uh, and radicals. And the first is, is through diagnosis. So I think that the study in its, uh, kind of contrasting of, uh, kind of a progressive way of thinking and, uh, eschatological thinking, um, so, uh, uh, provides a, a handy tool for coming to understand why, uh, you know, two groups of people who both agree that the current condition is catastrophically awful might entirely disagree about what to do next. Not, and, and that it's not just about, well, you know, is re- revolution possible kind of thing. But, uh, but about this, this sort of distinct notion of how events move in time. So the progressivist, you know, whether, you know, if we can sort of have a category of sort of radical progressivists who are like, okay, let's, you know, let's struggle as much as we can to make things better, understanding they're going to get worse again, understanding that this is not a battle for the win. This is a constant struggle. So this is a process frame, right? Uh, uh, you don't stop struggling because things might get a little better for a while for some people, right? Um, but you don't ever assume that you can get to the end, right? That you can stop time and stop politics because as soon as you do that, you, um, uh, uh, although there's this sort of illusion of escaping from domination, right? Um, there's no way to maintain a, 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 a sort of a self-ordering system without the reintroduction of domination. And so, so, so it's, it's really the conception of the flow of time uh, that's this deep underlying disagreement between certain kinds of reformers and certain kinds of radicals. Uh, where, and if you don't understand, so this is in terms of diagnosis, that this underlying dis, kind of disagreement about how time works is driving your, is driving that disagreement, you might not be able to get past it. So, so the first thing is diagnosis. Understand how conceptions of the flow of time are framing what we think is possible, uh, in politics. The second way I think it be, can be really helpful is, is with respect to persuasion. So I think it's important that radicals understand that apocalyptic or utopian or eschatological framing uh, historically has appealed very, very powerfully to people to the point where they are willing to kill and die and give up everything they care about. But, uh, only under certain, con- first of all, only, only a minority. So you're never ever going to get everyone on board or even most people on board with that kind of talk. Most people, even when it, it's justified by evidence, 
think that, you know, they, they just roll their eyes at that. And that's why, you know, it's, it's not a good way to go about uh, kind of sparking climate activism. Um, it, uh, and it matters how proximate the revolution is, so to speak, right? How proximate the end is. Uh, and so from a persuasion perspective, thinking carefully about, well, how many people do you want to reach? Um, uh, and what is it that you want to make them do or, you know, get them on board with doing? Uh, and think, of, so, so the book sort of looks at different, uh, conceptions of the flow of time and how you can sort of operationalize them. Uh, to be more and less persuasive, depending on what it is you want to do as an activist. Um, the third, uh, the third way in which I think that the book might be useful to uh, activists and radicals is just is 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 reflective, uh, because you know as as we've been saying, there there is this sort of you know so, so the draw of utopia I think is is this notion that uh, that because what is is so intolerable, it simply must be the case that there is something else. Right. Um, but we, we know that both with conceptions of heaven and religious utopias and, uh, uh, conceptions of, you know, what it would actually be like to live in commu under communism or, or, or anarchy, um, uh, that we tend to get little detail there. So say you were able to bring about the revolution and to tear it all down. What would happen next? Right? right. What happens yeah. next? That, so you get that's your, actually that's a big Zizek thing, right? Like what what happens after the revolution? Day one, you know, what now? What does it look like? You know. Well, and then day fifty, and then day five hundred. Right. That's right. Um, yeah. Unless you think that time can literally be stopped, I mean, literally be stopped, you have decay. Things are going to fall apart because politics, right? Because people struggle for power. And unless you can think that, unless you think that, you know, by day 50, you'll have somehow changed the way that people, uh, act among each other, um, to such an extent that that's, that there will be no politics, you are still going to need domination. And so not letting yourself off the hook about that, I think is another, you know, it's a reflection about that. Forcing yourself to look at day 50, not just day one, and day 500, right, right is a, a, a something that's important for radicals and activists uh, to think about. Would, would you say that it's a matter of – because I, I think it's important to – because some interpretations of the dismissal of utopia is the necessary acceptance of the status quo fundamentally in some way. And I think that's not what, what's on offer, right? Like I, I think what, what perhaps, uh, the book is suggesting is there's a way to think of a transformation that, that is wholly different from what is, but that doesn't escape the problem of human life frailty, uh, contestation, domination and politics. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to fundamentally change things. Um, and, and that's not quite the same thing as incrementalism, right? That, that's right. Um, it's the, the, um, it seems to me that, so if you want to sort of talk about like, a radical reformer versus you know, if we, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, right. so, so that you can change, you can change things very dramatically. Um, as long as you, as you don't lie to yourself, as you remain aware of the fact that doing so is going to require various kinds of violence and domination, not just in the process, but in the aftermath. And that there's going to have to be room for 
you know, if we think of, of politics as, you know, at its best, at least as a sort of sublation of violence and domination, right? Um, that, that there's, you will always have to create room for politics and, uh, and, and accept that that might break what you made, uh, that what you made is not permanent. Um, and, and that therefore struggle, uh, so, 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 so it, you know, struggle doesn't have to, I mean, of course it is an in, incremental in the sense that, uh, there, you know, it is just incoherent. It makes it, it's, it's not conceivable that you tear everything and, and build because you have no materials to build from, right? Um, uh, that, so as long as you're sort of willing to accept, uh, uh, that there's going to be struggle and violence and domination, not just temporarily during the revolution, but indefinitely. And as long as you're willing to accept that sometimes things are going to get better and sometimes they're going to get worse, uh, it, none of this suggests that you shouldn't struggle for, uh, radical change, just that you have to understand that it takes place in time and that time is not going to stop. Yeah. On that point, you know, you mentioned eschatology, right? I, I, I think some folks maybe not be super familiar with that term. Um, the, the, the eschaton, uh, a pretty common phrase, I guess, in theology and like political theory and stuff like that. But can you go into us? Can you, Explain for us what that is, um, and and you know how it works, and maybe maybe why it's so as you as you mentioned so appealing to kind of minorities of uh, extremists, um, you know, as it were in the case of uh, the 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 Sendero Luminoso in Peru. So um, eschatology again, something that we find across cultures, and I'm sure that's because everybody dies. And wonders what happens next. Um, Breaking news. <laughs> that's right. Um, um, that is 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 the study of the last things, literally. Um, so what's going to happen in the end? And so often that uh, you know in, in, that that has an apocalyptic aspect to it. So if we think about uh, you know the 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 uh, um, uh, you know Christian texts like Daniel and. And, uh, the book of Revelation, uh, also, uh, in, in Islam, there are various, you know, texts, some of them more or less esoteric, uh, um, uh, but, but also in, uh, you know, the, the Mahabharata, the Hindu Mahabharata, right? We have these idea, this idea that, 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 uh, uh, events in time move roughly like this. So things were great. People were pure. They were, awesome. They built stuff. They had fun. They did politics. They had adventures. And then, you know, over time, because this is the way of all things, stuff got decayed and corrupted until there's this moment. And usually these stories sort of suggest that we're living in this moment where things are just terrible, right? They're deeply corrupt and horrible. Uh, and all of this is going to culminate in a, in this moment where some force of pure evil and some group, some select group of the good are going to kind of fight it out. Um, and then everything's going to end. And then there are different stories about what happens next. Like, is the whole thing going to get going again? Or, you know, are the, uh, um, are some people going to be raptured? Or, you know, are some people going to go to heaven and be extremely bored? Or, you know, what's, <laughs> um, this is one of the things I'm, I'm fascinated by right now is just that is, is anything more boring than heaven? So what is the draw? You know, what is the draw of heaven or of utopia for that matter as a sort of a parallel on earth? Um, uh, so that's basically what eschatology is. And I think that part of the draw 
is that, um, it, especially when, because of course, you know, you say like it only, it, it's kind of this niche thing, but of course it's also part of many large world religions. And so we have to be careful. It's not just this sort of apocalyptic story. It's when it's expected to happen. So the apocalypse is pliant. If you say it's long in the future, you can get people to behave in one way. So for example, you can get them to be quite obedient, like just, you know, behave yourself, uh, deal with the world as Hide it your is. Time. Right. That's right. And the time will come, you know, so this is the thing that Machiavelli hated, right? This was the Christianity that he hated. Uh, but as soon as you move that date up, so if you think of all those messianic figures who say, you know, the time is coming soon, the day is near, right? Repent now. Then you can get people to do crazy stuff. And there are all of these UFO cults and QAnon, right? If you think about the things that QAnon followers do, uh, if you think about <laughs> ISIS fighters, right? So if you say the day is coming soon, that mobilizes people to do like quite, uh, uh, crazy, Your crazy book stuff. freaks me out, Nomi, because I didn't know that it was, what was it, 40 something percent of all Americans. Let me say that again. 40 something percent of all Americans think the second coming, the second coming is not only happening, it's happening by 2050. Yep. Which blew my mind. That actually shocked me more than the 58 percent of evangelicals that thought that. Because that's, that is a huge number of Americans that think that. And that's not 2050, not that far away. Uh, no, no wonder. I mean, is this suggestive of why, as you say, so many kind of nutcases are, you know, uh, rushing the capital or, you know, driving political candidates to say crazy things? Is this a diagnostic? Uh, is this helpful to us here? Do you think? Well, I mean, I, I think it, it, it does help to an extent. So when things are, you know, when, you know, is the book's called out of joint, right? So when the time is out of joint and everything feels chaotic, um, this provides a story that, that, that allow, that allows some people to make sense of what's going on around them, right? So it's like, this is the function of conspiracy theories. And I think there is a very close relationship between conspiracy thinking and apocalyptics or eschatology, eschatological thinking, um, because it basically, there's a story that, uh, ties all these sort of diverse phenomena together and tells you there's going to be a happy ending, right? Um, and, and so it, 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 uh, um, um, it does. Yeah. So I, I, so in a nutshell, yes, I think this does explain, uh, quite a lot. It, 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 and not only does it sort of give you a sense, like, so if you feel like someone smashed all the plates, right? The plates are all broken. Why can't anyone see that the floor is full of broken pottery and everything is broken and everybody is going around like it's normal and it's not, right? So if you have that feeling, someone comes along and tells you this story, right? That's going to feel pretty good. Now you understand what's going on, what's going to happen next. And not only that, it gives you a role in the story. It makes, so if you were bored or you felt like your life was meaningless, now suddenly- Agency now. Right, yeah. yeah now suddenly you're like an important person in this narrative, bringing it about. Like you think of all the QAnon followers, like sorting out the clues and stuff like that. You're an important person in the, in, in this story. And it sort of vindicates you um, and, and allows you to villainize it as pure evil all of the people who ever harmed you, essentially. So you could see the appeal of this. And also it's, it's danger. Sorry. 
It's very seductive. I, it's tough because the alternative message I want to give as a socialist is, okay, you can go to lots of meetings. We're, there's going to be a lot of meetings that we can have, and you can participate one of many, many people, and it's going to be really boring, and you're going to be, you know, it's going to take a lot of time, and not much might happen, but uh, you'll be involved. You have some agency. It's just not as uh, sexy, right? <laughs> well, I, th- I, d- I think that's right, uh, and and I think that we vastly underestimate the role of Boredom and loneliness in politics. Vastly ah, underestimated. Vonnegut, Kurt Vonnegut said those are the, the two uh, biggest killers in the United States, actually. Really? Well, there you go. Yeah. I haven't read Vonnegut <laughs> since I was like 16, but I loved him then, and it sounds like it's time for me to read him again now, because man, that good. guy was smart saying the same thing I did. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Just really briefly, like, so we have a little time left, and there's a lot of um, discussions of legitimation and, and delegitimation that are maybe problematic from MAGA to Orban uh, to maybe, the, you know, the false promise of utopia for the left and all that. Uh, and we've talked a little bit about, you know, what a good alternative um, might be. Uh, what else should we be thinking about when it comes to these conceptions of the flow of time and, and maybe kind of uh, positive visions of uh, – a political use of political power and, and and narratives that can give people more meaning um, in in ways that that don't um, promise you know the end of time altogether. Uh, yeah, what what other thoughts do, do you have for, for the audience that they should think about or uh, dig into in this book here? Well, that's a wonderful question, and I'm glad you asked it because um, I do think it's sometimes we get so wrapped up in thinking about the grand arcs of time and events in time, that we forget to think about how our individual lives are sort of mapped onto these larger cycles and lines and all of that. Uh, and I do talk in the book a little bit about, uh, uh, you know, the importance in terms of meaning construction of understanding the individual life as sort of mapped onto these kind of concentric circles of other narratives and, you know, whether they're the narrative of our religious community or of our state or of humanity or whatever. Um, and so, and, and alongside that, I've been thinking a lot about this concept of joy in the end. So we have so many apocalypses or potential apocalypses going on, uh, you know, in the, in the midst of COVID and, uh, you know, up in, in Canada, we had this, uh, you know, occupation of, Ottawa and, uh, you know, all of these, you know, it looks like politics has gone crazy and climate change and all of these things. And I remember having this moment where I thought to myself, is it unethical to be happy and enjoy yourself in the midst of all of this? And so I guess what I would want to say is that is that first of all, no, it is not unethical. It might actually be a duty that it is entirely consistent with acting um, uh, to change things, uh, with agitating, uh, with engaging in political action, to also enjoy uh, being alive, right, amidst people you care about, uh, that, uh, and, and that, that it's important and might be kind of soothing in a way to, to relinquish a little bit of a sense of control, Right. So yes, we're not yes. going to be able to fix everything. So, you know, if you give up on the idea of utopia or maybe on the idea of saving humanity from climate change, then you do what you can in your, uh, within yourself to, be, um, in your community 
and then, you know, agitating in a grander way to impact things. But you allow that you, that, that events move in time in ways that are too complex for any one of us to take control over. Mm. And it might be that everything goes to hell and there is going to be suffering and death and you as an individual may die before you expect to. Um, but that, that doesn't preclude that you sort of make the most of each instant before that and that, uh, that you can be joyful in struggle instead of miserable, that you don't have to feel apocalyptic even in the midst of apocalypse. So long as that's not preventing you from doing whatever is in your power to improve things, help your neighbors, uh, you know, struggle on the national or international uh, uh, stage. Beautiful. That's yeah. Beautiful. We, we, we I must like remember that. Sisyphus happy, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Sisyphus grind set. Um, no, I, I think that's, it's a good advice. You know, it's something that I was thinking about. You, you sort of put a name to, um, uh, something I've sort of half suspected and understood over the years, you know, which is the, the, that Marxism has a flavor of this eschatological, like thinking that you're pointing at here. I mean, I I don't, I wouldn't say Marx is like a stupid version of this or like a a whack job. And you could read his work in many ways. Uh, It's, it's a, you know, capacious, Um, and I think you could read it in a non sort of deterministic fashion, but orthodox Marxism and especially the sort of like turn crank, uh, uh, Soviet communism, the dogma of that sort of almost state religion was very much in this mold of, you know, the, 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 the apocalypse. We have the final confrontation and then utopia afterwards where there will be, you know, the lions will lie down with lambs and, and, and so on and so forth. And it strikes me, you know, it's like, that undoubtedly motivated like a lot of great political action, but then, you know, at the great in the sense of, you know, very consequential, um, for good and for a lot of ill mostly. But, um, it was, uh, eventually ran out of gas, you know, you're making these great promises and then, you know, for decades pass and you're still living your schlubby life and there's nothing as like the, 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 the wind has gone out of the sails of this sort of ideology and eventually, you know, it did, didn't have anything to support it. No, no glue and it discredited itself. And so it's like a, it's like a sort of cheap high that, that you can't build a real lasting, you know, um, political foundation on and obviously you know as you say there's there's no end to politics but you can point and look at something that didn't you know like was was a a failure on its own terms and didn't last very long and say well that is not a road you want to go down again that certainly that certainly makes sense to me um (laughs) it's um i think the, you know, the, 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 just, I know we're, we're just about out of time, but the other thing that I might want to kind of throw out there into, uh, you know, for your listeners to chew on is the role of the concept of inevitability. So when you talk about, you know, apocalyptic as- or eschatological aspects of Marx, um, the, the, and, and of course there have been debates since Marx himself about, you know, this balance between agency and kind of structural inevitability. Right. Uh, when you claim something's inevitable, that also gets people up and moving. Um, but when you claim something's inevitable, that also creates the conditions for uh, uh, disillusionment and uh, 
uh, and passivity, disappointment. Right? Yeah. yeah, and ultimately passivity. Exactly. Uh, so, so, so modulating that concept, not just the proximity of the end, right, or the right. opening of the new thing, right, but uh, what will bring it about. So, recognizing that it's our responsibility if we want change, That's it right. won't come about of itself. I think is critical. I, I think the marks that I like uh, is in keeping with your work. I, I think Nomi, you know, is a line that uh, always is a bourgeois term, and I love that, which which is the idea that everything is always changing. In other words, nothing is always the same or static, and that goes with the decay and 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 everything. Um, and and what that means is is uh, change can take many forms. There's agency that that influences how change occurs, um, but nothing is ever final or complete. Uh, and nothing ever stays how it is forever. Um, but we should have this responsibility to shape, right? The things that are to come that, that, that change from what is, um, even if nothing is inevitable and, and even if we don't know exactly where it might head. Um, and, and I think you've given us many tools to think about how to do that, right? Uh, well, I hope it'll, that, uh, you know, that, that the, our conversation, which certainly, you know, I've been enjoying, uh, uh, will uh, give your listeners some food for thought. And if they choose to have a, a look at the book, that uh, that it might give them both some, you know, as I say, you know, these three, so, so some tools to kind of diagnose where, pe- where uh, people with similar politics might come apart, uh, some tools to persuade and think about the ways that that uh, that opponents might be attempting to persuade and and also some some things to reflect upon in terms of their own uh, uh, the, the way they they conduct themselves as individuals and as activists awesome thank Great. you Nomi. The, the book is out of joint power crisis and the rhetoric of time Nomi Claire Lazar, really wonderful having you on and, and discussing these great topics. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it as well. And thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you in the next episode.